the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Troubling statistics regarding abortions in Illinois, and then are churches too complacent? You're listening to The Common Thursday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. Steve continues to sit in all week long for Aubrey, who is on vacation. She'll be back again on Monday. Uh, Steve, the, now the, the new father of a almost two-year-old and a six-and-a-half-week-old, uh, I, I ask this with some trepidation. How are you today? <laughs> <laughs> I'm much better than I was yesterday. That's all I have to say. <laughs> if anybody listens to the show regularly, they know that I, I did the show by myself yesterday. I was supposed to do it with Steve and fatherhood blew up. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, we had a uh, my two year old just would not go to sleep. And uh, we had a lot of stuff going on. You can imagine with the postpartum and uh, trying to be helpful and and I, I think I got through the middle of the day, even at here at the church, and was like, "All right, I I can't think straight, so let me go home." You know, that's a dangerous way to do radio. I was telling you before we started today, before we came on air last year, I did a show by myself uh, hours after um, uh, getting hours after testing positive for COVID. And I, I, it was the most dangerous show ever because I was delirious. I was this, you know, I remember when having those little kids at that age, just being, you didn't know if it was night or day. <laughs> it was like <laughs> everything is upside down. So, hey, you're looking good today. At least, uh, you know, we, we kind of, looks like your, your kids gave you a reprieve today. So happy for it. A little bit. Uh, all right. I want to talk about. A, a difficult subject. Let's let's jump in into a difficult place because I was surprised by this article, but then when I continued to read it, uh, I, I guess I wasn't surprised. <clears throat> Here it is. This is out of the <clears throat> excuse me, Chicago Sun Times. Planned Parenthood of Illinois reports a spike in abortion patients since Roe versus Wade was overturned. Patients seeking both medical uh, medication and procedure abortions rose for 54% in the last years, uh, and those needing financial and travel help more than doubled. So uh, what makes this interesting is it doesn't say it in the headline, but what this story is saying is it's risen 54% in Illinois. So yeah. not nationwide, but in Illinois. And as you read the article, it begins to make sense. Illinois is a place where people are traveling to to get abortions because places like Indiana or uh, or other neighboring states, especially, uh, have become much tighter. I found this uh, when I read this, Steve, I was like, OK, the abortion debate's complicated. Yeah. And but I guess this shouldn't surprise us. I want to get into how the church responds in general to this. But, but just the article, does this surprise you or does this make sense as you hear these statistics? It, it makes sense only because uh, I think I had I had uh, we we talked about this before, but Sky Jathani, uh, 
I listened to some of his ideas and thoughts about this and uh, and basically what happened before Roe versus Wade and the numbers of abortions going uh, going down over the course of time, uh, mostly because of uh, contraception and, and uh, use of uh, contraception. But basically the, the thought being that like either you can you can and this is his thought, either you can allow people to get abortions in your state or people will either just travel or do more dangerous things in order to get uh, in order to get uh, abortion. So um, based on his ideas around this, um, it just seems like that's that's part of the course. I don't know. Um, I don't know if that means that that's going to be everywhere, that the numbers are up in the blue states versus the red states. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I suppose it probably will be. But let's let's take this. You and I are both pastors, right? We're not, uh, you know, we're not uh, politicians or sociologists or whatever else it might be. How do you now that this has been the le- the letter the the law of the land for a year, right? Roe versus Wade probably got overturned last summer, if I remember right. Uh, what do we? You and I are both pastors. You're down in Chicago at Renewal Church of Chicago. Uh, how do you speak of it? But more so, what's the church's role in the in how things are right now? How do you kind of look at how the church should be uh, talking and what it should be doing in this present time? You know, I I think that, and this is just my leaning. Uh, part of it is my temperament. I think is that. I think the church is really known for what we're against and not what we're for. Mm. Um, and so my personal kind of approach to this would be really taking a lot of initiative towards single moms and the care of single moms. Um, there's an organization here in Chicago called Caris, which basically comes alongside single moms to help mm. provide for them uh, diapers and formula and different specific needs that a single mom uh, would have um, and show uh, moms that it's it's a possibility to uh, to have community support and church support. Mm-hmm. And one of the ironic things I think uh, that churches are known for, like I'm just thinking of uh, the shame that people have had at uh, different college campuses, uh, Christian college campuses, if, if a woman gets pregnant and then, uh, maybe they get, uh, they get pushed out of the school. Um, and what does that say for the single mom? Like, what does that communicate, you know, for Mm -hmm. the, the, the single mom, um, because of, you know, yeah. What is it, what are we saying to, to that single mom? I think, I think the church needs to be known for caring for, uh, the people who are most vulnerable in society, those being children and single, single moms. Yeah. I think that's really well put the whole, what are we against versus what are we for? Like, you know, I want the church. We've talked about this on the show a lot. We want the church. I want the church to stand up for unborn babies and to, you know, lean on politicians and do whatever else necessary. Uh, But then, like you said, we need to then pick up the, uh, the mantle with what we can do. You, you talked about Karis, uh, our church. I've got a friend here at my church who's who runs the Caring Network. It's the same type of deal uh, where they provide not just, you know, 
they're not just lobbying about abortion, but they're they're caring for single moms. They're trying to get churches to come alongside single moms. They're trying to uh, make it easier because what are the things that generally cause people to have abortions, right? Like the the headlines, there was that, oh gosh, who tweeted it over the weekend? It was some organization that basically was celebrating abortion. I don't think most people celebrate abortion. I think for most it's uh I feel like I have to do this. And so what does the church do uh, to come alongside these organizations, to come alongside, um, you know, single mothers and and also dads who want to help and whatever else might be, and then adoption agencies and foster yeah. care. So um, you did, that is an interesting concept that we're most known for what we're against. I guess even not just think, thinking about abortion, that opens a bigger door for me. How does that change? How do we not just become known for what we're getting? Because you're right. I think increasingly people think about what is the church against. Any thoughts on how that even changes? Man, I mean, to that to that earlier point, I think that, that we just show up so well in so many of these other spaces for people that mm. it starts to get known that Christians are the people who take care of uh, the orphan. Uh, Christians are the people because mm. e- even if you were to look at history, right? You look at history where the hospitals were started, where uh, orphanages were started, where uh, many of our schools were started, right? They they go back to some kind of Christian roots or some kind of Christian um, uh, foundation, and um, and so the ethic for that is still around. It 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 impacts a lot of people who aren't Christians and they don't even know it. But I think um, that kind of that ethic of going the next step uh, to like, this is what we do. Um, there's a I, I think I said this the other day. There's a woman who came out of uh, the Pacific Garden Mission at, at our church. And I, I, I own a home on the north side. And I asked um, and I, I don't want to be the hero of the story of, uh, <laughs> or anything. But I think it, it says something when um, when we're saying, hey, I'm getting this air conditioner out of this old house that you don't need. And I'm taking it to a woman that the church has helped get out uh, on her feet from the um, from the from the shelter. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. oh, I don't do that ever. Or I don't mm. do, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. Um, where we communicate like and that's what we're about. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's just like faith, faith, faith and works. It really sounds biblical, doesn't it? <laughs> that whole Bible thing tends to hold up the book. Of, you said you're preaching through the book of James. I'm sure this is running through your head uh, at all times. So alarming statistics, but as we hopefully are able to show you opportunity for the church, opportunity for the church, specifically here in Illinois, uh, as people are traveling here to get abortions, as uh, we are still one of those open states uh, for that. Uh, Steve, remind people of your church. Where are you at? Where can they find out more about your church? Yeah, we're at Renewal uh, Church of Chicago, just south of the medical district here in the city. And we're uh, stone's throw away from the United Center. We're a multi-ethnic disciple-making church. That's kind of like our uh, lifeblood, if you were to come you would experience a lot of diversity, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, push to uh, make disciples and be a part of the Great Commission. And you can find us online at Renewal uh, 
churchofchicago.com and uh, and then also on all of our social media platforms as well as YouTube. So if you want to check out a service, YouTube is probably the easiest place to go. Yeah. I mean, Steve preaches and when he preaches, it's like, you know, I it's probably an hour. I would guess I'd just speak in <laughs> 40 minutes, 40 minutes. There you go. <laughs> uh, he just gets going and going and going. Uh, yeah. Good stuff, man. Uh, a stone's throw from United Center. We've said that so many times that this winter I went to the United Center for a game with my family. We got uh, we sat at a Blackhawks game. I couldn't have been higher up. We were like literally the second to last row at the top. That's all I could afford. And uh, I pulled in and I thought to myself, I wonder where he's at. He's a stone's throw from here. I wonder where he's at. <laughs> and so, yeah, check him out at Renewal Church of Chicago. Uh, we always say the irony is that Aubrey is part of Renewal Church of West Chicago out here in the suburbs. So they have nothing to do with each other but an identical name. So uh, probably arguing over uh, domain names and stuff like that. So, uh, all right. I, I think this is going to be up your alley from some of the stuff we've talked about earlier, Steve. But um, a biblical scholar in the book of Amos, a guy by the name of Daniel Carroll, he wrote, uh, Christian Day does this thing called close reading where they bring on, I think it's awesome. They bring on scholars to talk about what they're like, they're, they're experts in. And this guy was talking about the book of Amos. And he asked this question, is God pleased by our worship? And he gives the answer right away. He says, for Amos, it depends on whether the God we worship demands justice. So he's going to link the worship that God desires to the justice, the care that we're showing for the less fortunate, for what we're standing up for. As just kind of a big thing, uh, what do you think about that? Obviously, he's a scholar in in the book of Amos. Uh, What do you think about the concept of, because it's weird to think about, is there worship that God doesn't like, that he's Mm -hmm. not pleased by? So what do you think about just his take on that and this whole topic in general? Yeah, we were actually preaching through the book of Nehemiah earlier on in the year, talking about rebuilding and getting back, uh, back to first things first kind of uh, kind of a thing and and one yeah. of the things that happens in in the book of Nehemiah I think it's in uh Nehemiah 4 uh or 5 but essentially the people of Israel had gotten um they had gotten galvanized by Nehemiah to rebuild the wall God had done uh, a lot in him and allowed the uh he got the king's attention to send him back and um, and so he kind of gives his Winston Churchill speech of how God has been with him and that they can do this thing. And uh, and then the Bible says that um, they started uh, giving like predatory loans out to uh, the people <clears throat> who were spending all their time building the wall. And then they started to lose their homes. They started to lose their their fields so that they no longer could eat. They started selling their children to provide uh, enough food for them to live because they no longer Mm -hmm. had homes and different things. And so Nehemiah comes back around and basically he's, he's uh, so saddened by what, what has happened um, that he kind of highlights the fact that the reason why they were in Babylonian captivity in the first place was because of how they treated people, how Mm -hmm. they, uh, how they cared for 
um, and how they essentially stole from people um, and were a part of injustices. And so the ironic thing is that, and I think Nehemiah sees the irony is like, we're trying to put God first place in our lives. And this is the thing that, that we're doing in response. And so I think that on the front end, Amos is saying something to the people of Israel. And then Nehemiah chapter four, I believe it's chapter four is like, why are you doing what God is here in the first place? Um, and so I, I think for me going through those, uh, those couple of passages, I realized, um, more, more clearly that this is a centerpiece of, uh, of what it means to, uh, walk with God and mm. follow God. Not in, and I don't know what, you know, how people would flesh out what, what they think of when they think of justice yeah. specifically. Um, but, uh, but, it seems to be an important part of what it means to be the people of God. Um, and it was deeply offensive in Amos's time and in, yeah. and in Nehemiah's time. Yeah. It, I didn't realize this. Amos 524 is like the Amos verse, right? Let justice roll uh, on like a, a river righteousness, <laughs> like a never failing stream. I think we all uh, know that whether it be from songs or just, it's one of those well-known verses. But this scholar points out that most readers miss that this line is embedded in a section in which Amos is wrestling with worship, where he literally tells them uh, to stop going to eat to their holy site, but to seek God instead. And so this a linking of worship and justice. Um, so you touched on it, and I'm going to ask you the question, even though you said, <laughs> even though it's a hard question, uh, what does justice look like now? What is justice for the church, for a church to actually say, we want to be a church that that cares about, quote unquote, justice? What's that look like in 21st century uh, uh, Chicago? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think that um, one of the one of the things that you see and realize in in parts of Chicago is that. And I have to, I have to go back. I have to go back a little bit further because sure. I think that people have a hard time um, with the concept of this. But when you think about 400 years of basically not being able to get normal jobs for African American people in mm. the United States, and I remember my my grandmother's sister telling me before she passed that uh, she didn't get a job at the phone company in Washington D.C. Um, for a couple of years, she interviewed and did real well in the tests and, and then never got a call back. And then finally she had gotten a call back, um, like a couple of years later. And she realized that the phone company had never integrated and they had just changed the policy for, uh, integrating the phone company. So literally like she's a regular clerk, you know what I mean? At the phone company. Um, and those opportunities are something that that they only have gotten within the past two generations. So you got to think. So when people and people get weird when when we talk about. Um, um, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm forgetting the term for for uh, hiring, hiring minorities uh, based on them being minorities and not the. Mm-hmm regular person. But if you, if you think about it, like basically the reverse has happened for four, for 400 years. And, Mm. and so 
I think one of the things that we have trouble with is that we're so disconnected and individualized that we don't even see our connection to the historical situation that we're in. Mm. And so when people look at the news in Chicago and they, they see all the stuff that goes on with gun violence and, uh, and people will get on the news and talk about, well, it's just a black family. If we had just done, you know, if they had just focused on the, their family as, as if a whole ethnic group can be uh, more sinful than, than another. I think that that kind of implies that in some way. Um, And then the thought of, um, of, of why, um, why, you know, black people can't find jobs. And then you, you look at the history of redlining in the city of Chicago. Uh, I live in Bronzeville now, right? And Bronzeville Mm -hmm. is the place where you, if you walk up and down Dr. Martin Luther King drive, you'll see different plaques of different famous people. Um, and one of the reasons why all the black people lived in that specific neighborhood is because they couldn't buy homes in, in other neighborhoods. Um, and some of that stuff is just, it's actually really recent. I just think mm. that we're so isolated and individualized that we fail to realize that we're like, this stuff didn't happen in a vacuum. Like we're actually tied to the history of it in some way. And so it's not, it's not, it's not as though like, okay, I, and, and I think this is a both end. You see like, Hey, I'm going to stand up for somebody who's being oppressed right in front of me. Right. In terms of like the woman who is being, uh, uh, beaten in, in, in the street, um, or being mm. somebody who has power using that power to oppress somebody else right in front of you. But I think it's, it's a tie to, to history. Um, and so that creates, you know, it's a multifaceted kind of, uh, kind of approach. So it has to, um, it has to include mentorship. It has to include job opportunity. It has Mm. to include, um, home ownership. It has to, it has to include a lot of things. And I, and I'm on my soapbox and I guess you you said, Steve, be on your soapbox. But when, (laughs) when you look at, uh, even if you were to look at the history past the, civil rights movement and you look at the war on drugs uh through Richard Nixon and through um Ronald Reagan and uh and then even still with uh George Bush like there's a higher level of sentencing towards people who smoke crack than people who do cocaine um and one is cheap and one is expensive and so uh when you look at the privatization of uh, of um, prisons and the prison system um, it it just perpetuated something mm. that um, is is really is really sad and so it, for a lot of African American people they look at the war on drugs and they say this is the war on poor people um, mm. and so it it kind of dug uh, a number of African American folks uh, deeper whole. And so now, you know, you look at the family structure and people will just say, well, they should should have just figured out getting their families together. And when poor people don't have opportunity and they don't have money, they got they figure out ways to find an economy to make that. And uh, it just so happens that the policies in place for our criminal justice system focus on um, on drug crime that poor people participate in more than wealthy Mm. people. And so that's stuff that I think we look at and we say, well, I'm not a part of that. But then I think that God is saying, 
no, I care about that. And so when it comes to faith and work and as, as Christians, what, what we, we care about in general is equity towards all um, and loving our neighbor. So yeah. to that point that you were talking about the other day, what is it, you know, people don't even want to remove the love your neighbor out of the, out of the equation mm-hmm. of Christianity. It's kind of the centerpiece of it. And, um, and so I think those things are just a part of the love, love your neighbor. And yeah. that's just one example of one like ethnicity in sure, specifics sure. of racial reconciliation justice. It's a good word, man. That's, I appreciate that. That that was helpful. That was really helpful. The end of the article here in Is God Pleased by Our Worship, uh, Daniel Carroll says this, Worship at its core must be formative, designed to mold and nurture a people of justice who lift up the God of justice and embody what that means in our lives and in society. That is the worship the prophets clamored for. A lot there. That is a, a really good way. All right, Steve. Uh, you are a teaching pastor at Renewal Church in Chicago. Uh, I'm a pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. And so one of the things I'm sure you enjoy doing, I enjoy doing is preaching. Uh, so let me ask the question this way. What do you have <clears throat> a favorite go-to biblical story that you love to preach? Like if someone's like, come to my church and just, you could preach whatever you want. Or you're like, oh, that's the one I love to do. I love the point it makes. I just love the story. Do you have, and if there's a couple of them, you can go, but I, I want to try to narrow down. Do you have a favorite story to preach? That's very, that's so challenging. But <laughs> if you were like, Steve, get up there and go. And in yeah. that, that's sort of qualifying question of like, somebody asked you to come teach on something. What would what what is the thing that you're drawn to the most? I think that the story of the rich young ruler mm. is uh, is my go to story, and I think the reason why is that you get to show people. I mean, there's just a lot there that people like you don't see on the surface um, in just the the regular reading of the, of the passage. The uh, Bible says that the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions because Jesus said, "Go sell all your possessions." But the conversation is predicated on him keeping all the commandments and him saying that he had kept them all from his youth. And essentially, I think the point that Jesus is highlighting is that he hasn't even kept the first commandment. Have no Mm. other gods besides me. Um, That's good. And so in that way, he's he hasn't kept any of it. Um, And, you know, the Bible says that if you stumble at one portion of it, you uh, you're guilty of it all. And so I think the the point that Jesus is making is that none of us can actually keep the commandments. None of us can actually mm. keep the law. In turn, it, it is a reason for our need for grace and mm. that grace being supplied through Jesus's perfect life and sacrificial death and bodily resurrection. And so I think to press in on the point that uh, that our only means of keeping the law is being connected to Jesus by faith. Um, and, and so that, that's just, that's just, uh, my first like that. mind goes to that and, um, it can kind of preach around that probably for a while. Yeah. yeah. I, I, the one that's been on my mind is, and also it comes like, I'm sure at some point you preached the rich young ruler and you were like, 
oh, that's like that made a difference. Like that did. And like that, you, you have that memory. Cause like when I was a youth pastor, we did a whole retreat and I talked about Peter walking on water, right. Orberg mm. had just come out with that book. And I love that story where, because you've got many different aspects of it. You've got Peter walking, you've got Peter sinking, you've got Jesus showing him grace and saving him. But then you got the other disciples in the boat, not doing anything, just kind of watching. And I remember doing that over a whole retreat weekend when I was a youth pastor. And it was one of those weekends where you're like, this made a difference. Like this mm-hmm. stuck. And I it, I always go back to that. So I just preached that a couple of weeks ago here at our church. And the week leading up, I was like, oh, I get to do this story. I'm so excited. I'm ready to go. And uh, there's something about that story where you're like, you know, Peter experienced something the other guys didn't. And even though he failed, he still, you know, got to experience the grace of Jesus and uh, it, it was it, it was something. How about an Old Testament story? Do you have an Old Testament story uh, that you love to go to? I my favorite Old Testament story is Joseph's life, uh, kind oh. of Genesis thirty-seven through fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy that with the sort of like the resolution of the conversation with his brothers being, um, "You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of many lives." Mm. Um, I just always, I always thought about that in terms of, you know, all, you know, Romans eight twenty eight all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are the called yeah. according to his purpose. Um, but you know, my, my father passed away when I was a kid and, um, there was just a lot of wondering of, you know, what was the purpose of, of that loss and hmm. how suffering, um, just, I always felt like I, it put me behind in a lot of different things, whether it be sports or, um, uh, just what I wanted yeah. to do in life and stuff like that. And so I don't know. I always clung to that, that verse and that story. That's good. Yeah. There's a lot there and it gets complicated for sure. Uh, I love the story of Nehemiah that you just referenced earlier. I preached through that years ago. The, you want to hear a funny thing? Uh, it was our second year as a church and I preached a series on Nehemiah and I was like, I just want to do this book. It's a great story, whatever. And there was another, uh, there was a guy in my church whose dad was a pastor and he happened to be visiting. And you want to know what his first question to his son was? What are you guys raising money for? (laughs) (laughs) And the son was like, we're not. And he's like, I've never heard anybody preach through Nehemiah without it kicking off a a giving tip. Yes. I was like, oh, I maybe should have saved that one. Uh, I love to preach uh, the calling of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. and. And that he's about to be sent off into just an, a, a kind of an awful existence, a tough calling, a really hard life. And it starts by God revealing himself to him. And that awe that he kind of is brought into drives everything, drives everything for the rest of mm-hmm. his life. Like what would have been when he put his head on the pillow and life was really hard? What do you think he thought about? I would have to think he thought about that time. He was called up into the throne room of God. And for us, how awe of God is really, it has to be what sustains us, like Mm -hmm. this picture of who God is. And then you get, you know, Moses at the burning bush and Joshua hearing from God, I'll always be with you. And, you know, Peter, uh, (laughs) I'm a, you know, the miraculous catching of fish, like this concept of awe over and over and over again. To that point, one of my favorites is, uh, uh, is uh, Exodus uh, 19 and 20, where God comes down at Mount Sinai 
to speak mm. to the people. And the Bible says that they told God, they told Moses, tell him to stop speaking lest we die. And uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just a picture of like the presence of the source of, of everything that, that exists uh, speaking to humanity and they, they can't handle it. Yes, exactly. So uh, just the preachers uh, talking about what we like to preach. Glad that you could get to know us a little bit better. All right, Steve. Uh, you actually sent me this article. I talked about it yesterday when you were not here, but I just want to get your thoughts. It is the story of artificial intelligence, not just helping with a worship service, but planning it, actually doing it. Here's the background for those who didn't hear the story yesterday. Uh, at St. Paul's Church in the Bavarian town of Firth, uh, chat a chat GPT bot, chat bot, personified by an avatar of a bearded man on a huge screen above the altar, began preaching to the more than 300 people who'd shown up on Friday morning for an experimental Lutheran church service, almost entirely generated by AI. They did 40 minutes. So there was a guy who was behind this, uh, the 29-year-old scholar, uh, who named Jonas Simmerlin, a theologian and philosopher at the University of Vienna. So he put in kind of the the parameters. We need a sermon. We need prayers. We need music. Uh, and he would say, though, that even though he conceived the service, 98% of it came from the machine and put together a whole worship service. This chat GPT, they call it Pastor GPT. Uh, so let's just start here, Steve, because then I'll t- I'll tell you some more about people's reactions to it. Because people, there was a line out the door of people trying to get in to experience this. Uh, I didn't think it was us pastors who were gonna who were in danger of AI taking our jobs. I got to be honest, I, that wasn't high on my list. But I don't know. Feels like we should be worried. <laughs> yeah, I had the. I actually did have that thought. I had like, well, could they write a sermon? Could they really, you know, could they really? Yep. And, and when you think about it, there's so many people that uh, who are afraid of public speaking and um, and so many people who. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm over here like, I wonder if you could use chat GPT <laughs> for evangelism. <laughs> listen to what it came, listen to the sermon it came up with. Uh, the artificial intelligence preached about leaving the past behind focusing on the challenges of the present, overcoming fear of death, and never losing trust in Jesus Christ. I don't know, man. That kind of preaches right there. (laughs) Uh, Now, people's response is interesting, and this is where I want to head. A lot of people were uh, turned off by the lack of emotion, by the lack of connection. It was just kind of this avatar speaking somewhat monot- uh, monotone, monotonously, that was the word they used. There was a disconnect. Mm. There was something missing. So the elements were mm-hmm. there, but the connection wasn't there, which people were saying, I need that in a church. I need the uh, people. There was a point where the avatar said something where people laughed. Well, obviously, the artificial intelligence has no ability to it just uh, kept going. It yeah, just yeah. kept going. Uh, so I thought that spoke something to the nature of the pastor and the role that we play. Uh, but I think that's where we've got it. Like, that's the lane. The lack of personal connection seemed to be the issue. 
Wow. I mean, that's interesting because um, when, you, when you think about it, I, I do think that there's some psychological thing in human beings that needs to connect to a human being. And so uh, maybe that means that our jobs are safe for, for a while until they upgrade uh, to being able to respond to uh, what's going on in the room. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this does get back to something a little more foundational that I think makes this an important conversation. The role of the pastor in the worship service. Because the AI was able to crank out a completely acceptably good worship service. It had the elements. It had the the proper messaging, all of this stuff. But it wasn't able to be pastoral. It wasn't able to shepherd both from the pulpit and obviously in one-on-one activities and all of this stuff. That's that's what struck me reading this. Like it could be a speaker, but it couldn't be a pastor. It reminded me kind of what's kind of our greatest role as pastors. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, that's powerful. And I, I, you know, when you do, when you do think about it, like you can't put that on, you know, maybe some part of that is that you can't put that on paper. There's something so human about that that you can't put on paper the sense of somebody caring for somebody. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so in some ways I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged. It won't take our line. Uh, there was one line in here that every pastor feels like, Oh, maybe this AI actually uh, was feeling what it's like to be a pastor. Somebody here was the quote. Somebody said, I had actually imagined it to be, it would be a lot worse. Like, I feel like that's what I hear about a lot of my sermons, right? Like, I'd actually imagine that this would, that this would be a lot worse. Uh, I, I do, the idea of the pastor and the role of the pulpit, how do you view it? Because when I get up there, I actually have people, my church is small enough that I have people in mind as I'm prepping. I have people's stories in mind as I'm writing. Not that I'm writing to them, but I know what's going on in my church. This is one of the downfalls. There's great things about the mega church, but this is one of the downfalls of the mega church. You can't have that sort of shepherding experience, but obviously AI doesn't have that. But when you're prepping, whether this week or next week, when you're prepping for a sermon, are you kind of the same way? Are you thinking specifically about your church? So you talked about the rich young ruler before, you know, you've got some story. Are you thinking about your specific context, your specific church? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I think that is, is, and, and maybe this shows my bias, but I've, I've preached in, in the mega church world before yeah. and, um, and now preaching, you know, say to 200 people in a service is, um, I think my preaching is better. And some of that may be my wiring. Like I am much more, um, uh, shepherd teacher than I am uh like prophet uh teacher um in in that like I I uh I feel like my teaching is better geared towards a group of people that I at least kind of know yeah. in some way and um and who who know me too so there's like a comfort level that comes with that for me there's uh a camaraderie I think between people and pastor that comes with that um, and then I, I feel like it, it is so dialed in and tailored, uh, that it just feels like it's not an off the rack, you know, suit, it's a tailored suit, uh, that I've, 
you know, hopefully done a good job presenting. Yeah, uh, that's well put. And so I don't think that we have to worry about AI coming for our jobs completely. It will be interesting. You do wonder if uh, if there will be AI churches, though. I, I seems like a bad idea, but uh, you do wonder if that kind of thing is coming. You know, we delve into a lot of difficult things on the show. We just finished talking about the Southern Baptist Convention disfellowshipping Rick Warren. We talked about abortion earlier. You talk about uh, apathy in the church. So, Steve, sometimes I finish the show and I'm like, I need to just lay down or I just need to, uh, you know, a palate cleanser. And so we like to end some of our shows with just some good news. And that's what we're going to do. We go to the week, theweek.com, and they have a section where they just tell stories from the week that are good news stories. We're just going to read them and hopefully leave you uh, with a smile on your face. I'll go first. Saving Spots Initiative protects wildcats and cultural traditions in Zambia. Holding the synthetic leopard fur up next to the real thing, it's hard to tell which is which. And that's exactly what the team behind Saving Spots wants to hear. Saving Spots, launched in August of 2019, uh, is an initiative in Zambia that aims to protect the country's wildcat populations while preserving the traditions and the uh, ceremonies of the Lozi. During the annual event, community members wear, uh, I'm guessing this is leopard skirt, uh, skirts made from leopard and several fur and headpieces topped by lion manes. This organization developed and designed faux leopard and several furs called heritage furs to replace this regalia. And they have the endorsement of the Lozi King. This is not only reduces the demand for wildcat skins, but also preserves one of the Lozi people's most important ceremonial events. So that's interesting. They did something to kind of a best of both worlds, but in the end, saving some leopards. Some good news there. Yep. <laughs> yep. I got number two. Uh, it says experimental drugs shown the significantly slow progression of brain cancer. A new study found the good experimental luck. Good drug. Luck Lorcitinib <laughs> uh, significantly reduced the progression of brain cancer, slowing the progression of tumors wow. by an average of more than 16 months. The drug created by the private drug developer, Servier Group, is the first molecularly targeted treatment for, to diffuse glioma, and, and study lead author Ingo Mellengoff called the results, which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a very big finding. So that's exciting. Uh, the slowing that is, of that is progression super of brain cancer. I, I promise you, the first story I gave you, I didn't mean to give you the one with all the really big words. <laughs> oh, that's good news. Number three, James Webb Space Telescope finds the faintest galaxy yet seen. The James Webb Space Telescope has observed the faintest galaxy yet seen in the early universe, giving researchers more clues into a period of time known as the epoch of reionization that took place after the arrival of the first stars. In a study published in the journal called Nature, researchers wrote that the galaxy called JD1 is approximately 13.3 billion light years away. How do they know that? That's amazing. Because of that, the galaxy is wow. being observed as it looked when the universe was just a few hundred million years old, space.com explained. Uh, before the Webb telescope switched on just a year ago, we cannot even dream of confirming such a galaxy. 
The telescope was able to observe JD1 due to its infrared instruments and through gravitational lensing, which they said was a revolution. Amazing. That's crazy. <laughs> All right, number four, graduating class surprises head of school with one final fun prank. The class of 2023 at St. Andrews School in Middletown, Delaware, wasn't going to graduate without one last surprise for head of school Joy McGrath. One morning in May, she walked into her kitchen at 6 a.m. and found more than 70 <laughs> students waiting for her. She said, I was in shock. Uh, they were in every possible corner like sardines. It took me a second to realize this is a senior prank. The idea came after senior prom when McGrath invited the students to her house for breakfast at midnight. Someone joked that they wouldn't mind going to bed right there in the living room. Student Kaishun Austin Chun said, uh, then a couple of us glanced <laughs> at each other like, hmm. McGrath's husband was actually in on it, leaving the front door open so the teens could sneak inside at 1 a.m. And Chun filmed the surprise, which quickly went viral online. St. Andrews is a boarding school, and Chum said McGrath takes such good care of us. She works hard to build in trust. Your, in your robe just for some coffee in the morning, and there's 70 students sleeping on your floor. <laughs> That's really funny. I'm, I'm yeah, not sure if I would be excited about it. After that one. That's for sure. Next, the last one, last one. Uh, study finds yoga can help cancer patients cut the risk of disease spreading or returning. New studies suggest that for cancer patients, staying active by walking 30 minutes a day and doing yoga can reduce fatigue and lower the risk of the disease spreading, returning, or causing death. At the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, three studies were presented that looked at the role of exercise in the lives of cancer patients. The largest was a randomized control study of more than 500 U.S. cancer patients with an average age of 56. The patients who received cancer treatment between two months and five years before the start of the study were split into two groups, one practicing yoga and the other attending health education classes. Blood work taken at the end of the study shows that those who did yoga had, quote, significantly lower levels of pro-inflammatory markers compared to the participants in the other group. That's crazy. All right. So yoga apparently, wow. apparently helps with cancer patients. Who knew? Who knew? All right, man, that's good news. All I'm going to be thinking about tomorrow when I wake up is what would it be like if there were just students everywhere? Like that would be uh, no good. See, in your house, they could rock a baby or they could feed a baby in the middle of the night. You, Yeah, you I'd use the extra hand. The extra hand. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. We got one more show this week. Tomorrow, Steve is going to be here with me again as we close out the week until then we hope that you have a wonderful night and a wonderful rest of your week for steve coble i am brian Fromm. you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.